I'm uh, Professor Nick Bostrom from the Fisher Humanities Institute, uh, another component of the Oxford Martin School, which is convening uh, this seminar, which is indeed part of a whole series organized by the Institute of Aging, um, another component of the Oxford Martin School. Uh, this is a, a cross-disciplinary uh, seminar series, so we expect that in the audience there might be people from many different uh, backgrounds. Uh, hopefully that will lead to an interesting discussion afterwards. Um, um, I'm happy to, to introduce uh, today's speaker, uh, Professor John O'Neill um, uh, of uh, Manchester University, where he's the Halworth Professor of Political Economy uh, and co-director of the Political Economy Institute. Uh, O'Neill has written widely on uh, philosophy, political economy, and environmental policy. Um, his books include Markets, Deliberation, uh, and Environment, The Market, uh, Ethics, Knowledge, and Politics, and Ecology, Policy, and Politics, Human Well-Being, and the Natural World. Uh, and he has been involved uh, in a number of European projects on uh, various uh, environmental issues and environmental policy. Okay, well, thanks very much, and thanks for having me. The theme that I was given to talk on is this one, so sustainability, how can each generation live well within its limits. The actual title of the talk that I'm going to be talking to is like well-being, time and sustainability, Epicurus or Aristotle, and I'll explain why that contrast is there. And as, as I say, my chair is in political economy at the moment, but my background's in philosophy, so it's on the borders between philosophy and political economy, and that's where it's, you'll get here. I should say this, this is a version of a talk, a longer version of a talk, which I gave to the Sustainable Development Commission. And it emerges out of kind of a dialogue with the work they were doing, right? Which led, I think, to the, to the Tim Jackson piece, uh, Growth Without a Prospect. What was it? Prosperity yeah. Without Growth. Thank you. Right, yeah. So, that's, so it's part of the seminar series that led to that. So, and, it's, and I hope, I've been told to kind of give this to a sort of general audience, so I hope it will be uh, accessible to everyone. So there's two questions that I want to address. The first one was the one that really came up from the Sustainable Development Commission, which was about the relationship between consumption and well-being. And the kind of background worry they had is, look, that it's a condition of sustainability in at least advanced economies is that there's less material consumption, material we consume less. The kind of worry they had is that's unlikely to happen if a fall in consumption leads to a perceived fall in well-being. So the first question that there was, they were kind of raised was, can a reduction in consumption be rendered compatible with at least the maintenance of well-being and, if possible, an improvement of well-being? So, and that was seen as a kind of condition for sustainability because it's going to be hard to sell sustainability if it's going to mean a loss a severe loss of well-being. So that was the first question. The second one that I've been interested in for a long time is about how you get people to have a concern for a long time, time horizon. How do you extend people's time horizon so they have a sense of belonging to, in a sense, not just to a common citizenship globally or nationally, but a sense of citizenship across generations? So how, what are the conditions for the development of a kind of sense of citizenship that, citizenship that crosses generations, different generations, and which extends people's time horizons? So that was the question that I was interested in. 
and I think is an ongoing question and is quite an old question. I'll come back to it later on, the, uh, the history of that question. So those are the two questions I want to address today. And in doing so, I want to compare two different answers to those questions. The first from Epicurus, the second from Aristotle. So this is a kind of Epicurus or Aristotle as an answer to those questions. If you look at question one, how can we maintain or improve well-being but with a fall in consumption, a lot of the recent environmentalist work, and people like Jonathan Porritt was one that I was uh, responding to earlier on, but others have appealed what I will call an Epicurean answer, and I'll say a little bit more about this later on. But the basic idea is that if you take recent hedonic research, it's, it's all the stuff that you see popularly about happiness and happiness studies, right? And they're kind of that attempt to measure happiness, which is kind of politically salient at the moment. But the, the claim is, is that recent hedonic research shows that improvements in subjective well-being about how you feel, and I'll come back to that later on, subjective well-being can be decoupled from an increase in consumption. So if you assume a particular account of well-being in terms of people's subjective states, about their, if you like, classic hedonic view, pleasure in the absence of pain, right, or pleasurable states in the absence of painful states, you can see how you would decouple well-being from material consumption. So this, the answer to the first is kind of Epicurus. If you look at the answer to the second, it tends to be Aristotelian. That is, it's the idea that central to human well-being is a kind of public world and public projects which cross gener generations. And you find that right back through the civic republican tradition, which I'll say a little bit about, back to Aristotle. Problem is that Epicurean and Aristotle's, Aristotelians have different views of well-being. They have competing accounts of what makes a life go well, a subjective account, which well, account of well-being, which is in terms of how people feel, their subjective states, versus an objective account, which is how people can actually do or are, you know, how they are or do in their lives. Right? So they have various beings and doings, as Sen would have it. They have that competing accounts of well-being, and classically they had different sites of human flourishing. So Epicureans typically look to private life, the Aristotelians typically to the public life. So the question is, is how should that conflict be resolved, right, in answering my two questions, if you've got two different kinds of answers to those questions? And I'll say a bit more about those answers as I go along. The argument I'm going to present is that basically you should be resolved in an Aristotelian direction. Right, I'll just say that now. But one, I hope, which actually maintains the insights which I think come out of some of the recent hedonic research. So I don't want to kind of rubbish that research because I think it's important. So here's the structure of the talk. First of all, the first part is, if you like, the Epicurean answer to the pleasures of sustainability. So should we go back to Epicurus in answering that question about how we can decouple increases in consumption from increases in well-being? Second section, I'll then talk about conditions for intergenerational citizenship and look at back to Aristotle. So why I think the Aristotelian answer has something to do and what, in relation to the Aristotelian answer, what's the weaknesses, I think, of the Epicurean answer. Third section will be sustainability and well-being. It's Epicurus or Aristotle. And finally, I'll do a postscript, which is just some, some parting thoughts which I think emerge from what I've said. So that's the structure of the talk. So is that okay so far? Everyone, everyone happy with that? Okay. 
Epicurus then, first of all, the pledge of sustainability. Here's, here's the, the initial document that I uh, was responding to from the Sustainable Development Commission. It's one by Jonathan Porrett in, in a document called Redefining Prosperity. And his question in that document was, is it possible to decouple improvement in people's quality of life or their overall life satisfaction? I'll come back to that notion of life satisfaction later on. Is it possible to decouple an improvement in people's quality of life from increases in consumption? And the argument goes that the findings of hedonic research on subjective well-being do suggest that you can decouple uh, consumption from an improvement of well-being. That's possible. And they're appealing to people here like Kahneman, Frey and Layard. I'll come back to that later on. And that decoupling is taken to offer a way of moving towards a low consumption economy that's necessary for sustainability. So recent hedonic research is good news, the claim goes, for sustainability. Right, all of the discussion, I mean, his, you know, this is Porritt's discussion starts here. A lot of them discuss here. I have real problems with this, I'll say later, when I'll say why later on. This is the standard kind of graph that people uh, raise here, which is you have a nice increase in GDP here, and you have life satisfaction bumping along at the bottom there. I've seen a more recent graph from uh, a Kahneman article, which has GDP going up in China here, and life satisfaction going slightly in the opposite direction. So you can have it go in two directions. And the kind of claim that people want to make is, look, there's, you've got increasing consumption, increasing wealth, but no increase in people's life satisfaction or happiness. Right, yeah. So if we're really concerned with happiness, or, or we shouldn't be concerned with this increasing growth. It gets slightly complicated, I'd say, and this causes a problem, which they don't talk about very much, is decreases in GDP do lead to a decrease. <laughs> in happiness, right, yeah, right. So there's, I mean, we can talk about that in discussion afterwards. But you have that, you have that graph. I think that, I mean, I like the, I, I like the thought, I have problems, which I'll come back to later on with this graph. Why, why is that, right? The argument goes that beyond a certain level of growth, right, beyond, you know, there's a minimal level of poverty, right, but beyond a certain level of over, certain level of, of wealth, certain level of GDP, Overall uh, growth in real, in real income isn't matched with a growth in reported happiness. Now, there's an important difference here is that relative income within any, any period is correlated with differences in reported happiness. So if, on the whole, if you're richer, you tend to be report greater happiness. Right. But absolute growth right, in income across, uh, across a period of time isn't correlated with a change in subjective happiness. So relative income is correlated, absolute growth of this kind isn't. So that's what's in that curve. Why is that, why is that the case? You get two standard answers about why you have, yeah, sorry, go back, why you have this, this curve like that. There's two standard arguments. Is first of all is what's called hedonic adaptation. And that is the, t intense, the tendency of the intensity of uh, some good and bad experiences to lessen as individuals adjust to new states of affairs which they find themselves. I, kind of, I, I, I belong to a generation, I mean, I think there's a truth in it. I belong to a generation which remembered the days before central heating. <laughs> right, yeah. And it was great. I mean, you had Jack Frost at the window and things. All these, all these things that kids never see anymore, right? Yeah, all the kind of... 
I remember when Central Heating first came on, it was a tremendous change, right? Yeah, you could kind of get up and be in a T-shirt in the mornings and so on. So, but, but now you only, notice tea, you only notice central heating when it breaks down, right? So it, you kind of adapt and, you, and it just becomes a background condition. It's that. And it works both ways. I mean, what people point out at the same time is that people that come out of serious accidents, disabled, they, the experience, people think it's going to be worse than what it is in terms of life, you know, reported happiness, right? Yeah, so people adapt to bad situations and to good situations. People adapt in both directions. So one argument for why you have that treadmill then is hedonic adaptation. A second, which I think is independent of that and which I think is, goes back to uh, a wonderful book by Hirsch called The Social Limits of Growth, is about positional goods. So if you take positional goods, the positional good is one which the consumption of others, by others of that good, affects your what, the, what, what uh, satisfaction that you get from it. The claim is, is positional goods like that, such as status or relative income, if you think they're good because you have more or they're good because you have status, a positional good like that, the, the, the aggregate race for that is self-defeating because each individual makes a choice for that good whose worth is affected by the same choice of others, right? So, the, so something like the increase of, of income or an increase in consumption of status goods is not matched by any general increase in life satisfaction because everybody's trying to move up one and so no one changes. So it's a standard, everybody's standing up in a crowd to get a better view and no one getting a better view kind of uh, phenomenon. So the claim is, is where you have goods whose, you know, whose worth is based on its relative, its, its, its relative worth to what other people's consumption of that good is, where everyone consumes more of it, it doesn't produce any more uh, well-being or happiness. So you've got two arguments then. One is about hedonic adaptation. One is about the self-defeating nature of this, this kind of uh, rush for positional goods. And the claim goes that as a result, people are on a hedonic treadmill. People find themselves consuming more and more goods, right? They, they, as they consume more, they want more, but life satisfaction stays static, right? So it remains at the same level. So that's the kind of argument that the hedonic, oh, this is the hedonic argument. I think this is actually independent of hedonic theory of well-being, in fact. Okay, so the environmentalists like Porritt who pick up on this say, okay, what we've got to look at is major correlates of subjective welfare which aren't subject to those kind of treadmill effects, right? And what really does matter for happiness, and you, you, this is what you typically find now if you go on to any of the kind of happiness sites on the BBC and so on, or I just, actually I just picked the, up the big issue for today, I'm coming onto this meeting, and there's a whole section on happiness, right? And this is what you'll get typically in, in that, and it's picking up on the, the empirical work. Quality of family relationships matters, the security and the intrinsic worth of your work matters, health matters, personal and political freedoms matter, and the quality of wider social relations in a community, so how much, for example, how much trust there is within a community. And the claim is, is actually therefore if you're concerned about well-being and improvement well-being, what your policy should be directed to is the improvement of these, factors, not the, improve, not the increase in uh, private consumption of material consumer goods, right? And indeed, you know, kind of the stronger argument that, that the kind of environmentalists that appeal to this hedonic pictures want to say is that increased private consumption might actually undermine the pursuit of some of these other aspects of life which are correlated with increased happiness, 
Right. So it might be not only not good for well-being, but it might be ultimately counterproductive, and what we should be looking at is those components. Okay, the research that people are appealing to here is one that appeals to a subjective account of well-being. And you get a lot of articles, well, you get at least one article, you get some articles which have this, you know, dot, 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 back to Bentham, question mark, right. So we, should we go back to Bentham? And the, basically the reason they say that is because this atonic research, a lot of it is assuming a subjective state account of welfare. So what, what, what do we mean by welfare? What is it to, for a life to go well? Welfare on that account is a matter of being in the right mental states. So here's Kahneman and some colleagues, Dynaman and Schwartz, saying hedonic psychology is the study of what makes experiences and life pleasant and unpleasant. It's concerned with feelings of pleasure and pain, of interest and boredom, of joy and sorrow, of satisfaction and dissatisfaction. But it's concerned with feelings. Right, it's concerned with psychological state. And here's Layard in his wonderful book, Happiness, right, yeah, which has been very influential. By happiness, I mean feeling good, right, enjoying life and wanting the feeling to be maintained. So it's about feeling good, it's about psychological states. And that's the, you know, and the, the claim is, is what, this, what the count of well-being you're assuming in all of this is that kind of subjective state account of well-being. So what you're showing is the quality of family relationships, intrinsic quality of work, work and so on, actually gives you better psychological states, gives you more pleasure versus pain. Right? So that's often seen as back to Bentham. I think when the environmentalists get hold of it, it's actually back to Epicurus. So the environmentalists is basically going back to an Epicurean theme about the limits of the goods that you need for happiness once you understand what the causal determinants of well-being are, what happiness is, once you've understood it in this subjective state uh, way. So here's back to Epicurus' principal doctrines. Epicurus says, natural wealth is both limited and easy to acquire, but wealth as defined by groundless opinion expends without limits. And the kind of idea behind the whole Epicurean philosophy was to free people from false beliefs about what the determinants of happiness were, right, to liberate them and therefore to produce, you know, a state of, of happiness or well-being. Right. And one of the things you had to liberate people from was the idea that you had to accumulate more and more goods. Another one was the fear of death, which I'll come back to later on. Okay, so that's the kind of Epicurean story so far and its kind of relationship to the, the standard environmentalist story that's coming out, trying to link, you know, development hedonic psychology, the measurement and of happiness and understanding what correlates with improvements of happiness, right, the kind of story. Is that okay so far, right? I'm trying to yeah, make sure everyone's... <laughs> Everyone's with me, right? Okay, that's the story. Okay, what's wrong with that? All right, so it's the second section, intergenerational citizens back to Aristotle. What's wrong with Epicureanism from the point of view of environmental public policy? Why shouldn't we just go with that story? Because, and I'll, I'll say, you know, when I read it, I've got a lot of sympathy with it, right? I think, yeah, that, that sounds, that sound, it's, it's the kind of story you think, yeah, if that was right, yeah, I would... I would go with it. One, one argument you might have is that, you know, the kind of standard classical kind of criticism of Epicureans is that they, they made well-being a matter of private, what you, what you did in, in your private life rather than in the public world. 
So it might be seen as incompatible with ideals of citizenship. But the modern Opicurean can just come back with empirical research on that. You might come along in this good paper by Frey and Stutzer, which, says, which shows good evidence of a strong correlation between subject, reported subjective well-being and political participation. So it might be being a good citizen actually makes you happy. <laughs> right, yeah. So the Epicurean story has to look at that kind of empirical evidence and say, okay, yeah, public citizenship is part of what makes for a good life. So I think that kind of classical argument between the Epicureans and the Aristotelians, I don't think you need to worry about. I think citizenship's compatible with uh, an account of, you know, an Epicurean account of well-being. The, the criticism, so I'll leave that criticism aside. I don't think that one has much power anymore. I want to focus really on a second criticism which is that the Epicurean doesn't provide a good account of citizenship across generations. It doesn't give us an account. Another way of saying is it, it gives us a very good account of why maybe we should consume less for us now, but it doesn't give us really a good account of why we should care for our own point of view about future generations. Before I start with that, I want to make a very clear opening point that nothing in hedonism rules out concern for future generations as such, right? So if you have a hedonistic account of well-being and you have a suitable ethical theory, you can have very strong obligations for generations. And the, the great example of that is classical utilitarianism. So classical utilitarianism says what you should do is maximise hedonic well-being. You should maximise pleasure and the absence of pain, right? Yeah. And that's normally taken to be blind to the time where the agent affected by the policy exists, right? So it's, supposed to, it's normally seen to be time neutral. It's impartial across time. So a classic statement of that is Sidgwick, right? He says, there's no abstract reason why the interest of future generations should be less considered than that of existing human beings. Allowance be made for the greater uncertainty that benefits intended for the former will actually reach them and actually be benefits. So as long as you, you take this, the uncertainty away and the, and the kind of worry about them being actual benefits, their interests count the same. And it's kind of interesting, a lot of the debates about discounting, which we can maybe talk about later on, are actually, in a sense, between classical utilitarians and the economists that want to discount, right? Yeah, because from the classical, you can't discount well-being as such from a classical utilitarian point of view. Going back even further to the Epicureans, here I'll have Lucretius, and I like this quote for all sorts of reasons, right? I'll, Actually, right, okay. This is Lucretius on the fear of death, and he says, there is, a need for matter, there is a need of matter for the growth of later generations, all of which nevertheless shall follow you and when they have lived their lives. And in like matter, generations before you have died and others shall die hereafter. Thus without end, one springs from another and life is granted to no one as possession but as a loan. And you could actually have a kind of version of that, that idea, which is very environmental. You know, our deaths are a condition of the welfare of those that follow and should be accepted as such. And actually, there's a kind of ethic here. I mean, kind of, there's a kind of ethic which is against a view which says that, you know, one of the things that we should be doing, you know, is extending life indefinitely. <laughs> right, yeah. There's good reasons for lives to have a beginning and an end, and they pass out, and there's further generations that come beyond, beyond us. And I think there's a lot too, there's a lot powerful about that idea of having, yeah, we can talk about it in discussion afterwards. I mean, there's, it lays, you know, I've, I've got a sympathy with the, that kind of Lucretian thought. So there's nothing in hedonism which rules out 
concern for future generations. If you have the right ethical theory, you can have something like utilitarianism, which says you're impartial across generations, or you have something like Lucretius that says, you know, that we, you know, our deaths are a condition for the future, for future generations, right? Yeah. Very, very kind of strong kind of ethic of a kind of concern for future generations. So the, the problem for hedonism isn't that, it's problem for, I find with it is the nature of the concern that it calls upon. And, it's, and the problem is the obverse of the solution to the problem of consumption. So is when you look at the problem of consumption, it says, look, in terms of your own quality of life, it's good to consume less, right? When it comes to cross gener future generations, nothing of that thought remains. The concern for future generations becomes purely an impartial concern. It's not tied at all to how well your life is going. And that actually was crucial to the Epicurean kind of view of why you should, shouldn't be frightened of death, because what happens after you die is irrelevant to your, how well your life is going now. So if your life just consists in being, your well-being in your life consists in having the right subjective states, take away subjective states, neither, your life's neither going well nor ill. <laughs> right. So you don't have to be concerned about it. So that passage from Lucretius, which I like so much, is followed. Most people don't look at that bit of it, which I think is really interesting. They, what they read and what you do with students is always the next bit, which is the mirror argument. So this is how the, the, that passage continues. It says, see likewise how little concern to us were the ages of internal time that passed before we were born. Nature holds this up to us as a mirror of the time that, sh that will be after our death. So the kind of claim is, is there's little, what happened to you, you know, what happened before you were born makes no difference to you as how well your life is going, right? It's a matter of indifference to you. Likewise, what happens after your death should similarly be a matter of indifference to you. Because if welfare just consists, consists in being the right psychological states, right, take away the psychological states before and after, it's just a matter of indifference, right? So there's nothing, nothing as far as you, well, how well your life is going that makes any difference to what happens afterwards. So your concern for the future becomes purely an ethical concern, right? It can't be a concern that's grounded in how well your own life is going. And there's a more general, so I want to come back to that. I mean, one, one of the things I want to argue from the Aristotelian perspective is there's good reasons for, from our own perspective, our own lives, for, for being concerned about what happens after we die. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But the way, the way I want to come back to that idea that there might be something about what happens in the future that matters to us and how well our lives go in is looking at another, a more general problem about hedonism and the way that it values over time. Right. So there's two issues here. First of all, as I said already, the concern for future generations is only a purely ethical matter, not tied to how well one's own life is going. Part of that is what happens after a person's death is a matter of indifference to that person's life. But there's a more general issue which I want to focus on as a way into why I think that view is wrong, which is about how the value of different moments of time are understood and taken to be independent and can be summed. So I want to think about how you actually value your life over time. Right, what happens, you know, what kind of sums do you do to say whether your life is going well over a period of time or over a lifetime? Right, how do you determine an answer to that question? So if you take hedonism, hedonism says that all that matters to the welfare is subjective states. 
right? You know, putting it crudely in the crude classical version, you know, it's pleasure and the absence of pain. If that's the case, if the all that matters for the welfare value of some event at any moment of time is the quality of the experience at that moment, then how well my life is going at the moment right now, right, can be ascertained independently of how well it went yesterday or how well it went tomorrow, right? And you could, and the, and you know, recent hedonic research has a sampling method, right? I just said this is a kind of example of that. One way they measure time is they could buzz me now and say, how good is it between one and ten? just at the moment, and I'll come in with something like 6.5, right, just at the moment, okay, <laughs> right. But you just, you can do that, and it's called, a, it's a kind of uh, an experience sampling method. So you can go through the day, experience, you know, buzzing people, saying, how, you know, what, you know, scale of one to 10, how happy are you? Right, yeah, you can do it. But that, but the idea is what you can then do is take all those moments, right, yeah, you've got, they've got, each got hedonic value in terms of how much pleasure or absence of pain was. You want to know the value of a total experience, Right, you just simply sum all of those, right? And that gives you the sum of, that gives you the total value of an episode over a period of time or a lifetime if you do it over a lifetime. So it's, it's the kind of Edgeworth's hedonometer, right? You have a, a, me a meter which measures levels of pleasure and then you sum over them. So you have a kind of, I'll come back to it, you have a kind of curve underneath. So the total value then, says Kahneman and Sugden, you know, on the hedonic view, is the sum of moment by moment effective experience. Well, Frank Ramsey, in a really important paper on intergenerational savings, put it like this. Enjoyments and sacrifices at different times can be calculated independently and added. So you take moments of pleasure, you know, that, I mean, how much pleasure you get can be actually you know, partly determined by what happens before. But the actual level of that pleasure is given by the amount of you know, the value of that pleasure, which is given by the intensity, if you like, of the pleasure at that moment in time. Okay, and you sum. Okay, so that's, that's one picture. What I want to do is suggest that that view of value... Is that okay? Do people got the, the picture there? Right. What I want to do is suggest that that picture of how you value over time is wrong. And it's partly because the narrative... What I want to suggest is the narrative shape matters to how you value an episode. So it's not just how much pleasure or pain exists in it, but actually the narrative shape of an episode. And I want to start actually with recent hedonic research, right, which shows that actual people's individual's global valuations of episodes or lives often depart from that adding moment-by-moment -moment experiences. So people, when they actually value a period of you know, an episode or a life, don't follow that adding of a moment-by-moment -moment, uh, experiences. And the strongest version of this is the Kahneman experiments on pain, right? I'm not, I'm not sure, I mean, I'm not going to make any big claims about this. I just, it's just because it's the most dramatic uh, example of it. So this is actual pain intensity. So this is doing an ex experience sampling again. So you're saying, how, this is people with a colonoscopy. Has anyone's had one? And no, I mean, I haven't had one, but it's painful. <laughs> right, right, right. So this is, this is patient A, this is patient B. You look at here, according to the hedonist, right, how bad this episode is, is simply a matter of the area under, this, under, the, under the line. Right, yeah. So you've got these moment-by-moment -moment experiences. You do a sum, right, yeah. And what you'll see immediately is that patient B, on, the, on that account, has more pain than patient A, <laughs> right, there's more. Most patients prefer B to A, right. 
And they do so, I mean, the, the peak end rule is how bad an episode is experienced is actually a, a function of how bad the worst moment was and how badly it ends. So it's called a peak end rule, right? And I should add, people that have this kind of extended end, which ends less badly, are actually, according to the research I've seen, more likely to come back for a future operation as well. Right, yeah, because they've, they've experienced it less bad. Right. Now, the question is, is, one thing is, have they just, you know, one, one, one response by a hedonist is simply people have made a terrible mistake. Right, yeah, people have made an error, right? And the, the error they've made is a, is a memory error. Right, yeah, they've simply, you know, because it ends badly, that's the, that's the bit they remember, right? And that's one standard interpretation that you can have of it. This is simply a, you know, and so if you, and I, I think this is a problem for doctors, and I don't know what I'd say about this. I mean, should a doctor pointlessly extend an episode, right, just so it's kind of, we can talk about that afterwards, right, yeah. And it's, it's very unclear to me. But, right, you know, the, the claim is it's simply a memory error. I don't think that's right, right? And whether, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to make any claims about what we should do here, right? I mean, this is just a way of introducing why the shape might matter. I'm not saying all shapes matter and all should be endorsed, but I'll give you another, another two examples. This is, what's, this is some psychology work. This is not to do now with memory. This is to do with people evaluating people's lives. And they have two effects here with psychology. One's the Alexander Solzhenitsyn effect, which is just a lifetime version of this. You take someone who's had a pretty lousy life, right? And you, this is Sol, apparently it's Solzhenitsyn. Whether he did really have a bad life or not is another question. Right, you take Solzhenitsyn and you add a few more bad years at the end, but they're not quite as bad as the really bad bits. So you have a, a kind of lifetime version of this, right? Most people say, you know, Again, going through the Solzhenitsyn life with the extra bad bits on is better than the one that ended before, even though they're still bad. Right, so that's your standard thing. The other is the James Dean effect, right? Respondents actually think that a wonderful life that ends abruptly is better than one that has additionally mild, mildly pleasant years added to it. So they're the kind of result. So it looks like, and this is what the thing, that people are making judgments about not just how much happiness exists in there, but this shape of a life. Whether, again, you should endorse these, I'm not clear about. I certainly wouldn't endorse this when I mean, coming back to a policy of ageing. <laughs> right, I don't think this would be a good idea for a kind of age policy that you sort of think, OK, we'll just bump people off at their happiest moment and then, right, yeah. It's kind of Bob Dylan effect as well. I mean, a lot of people think Bob Dylan's life would have been much better if he'd died in a motorbike accident in 67, right? <laughs> Rather than produce some bad albums later on, right? OK, right. So it's, 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 that, it's that kind of effect. Now, I'm not going to say that you should, you know, I think Bob Dylan should have died in a motorbike accident or that you should bump people off at a certain point. So I kind of, I'm not going that. But what I do think, and I'm not sure I want to really endorse these either, these kind of accounts. What I do think, however, is that sometimes narrative shape matters, right? Yeah. So the shape of a matter episode matters to our evaluation. I want to claim that sometimes it should matter, that it's, sometimes it's rational to say the shape matters. And there's where you get a distinction between the hedonic response, if you like, and the Aristotelian response. The hedonic response, as far as I can see, to all of those examples, is that people are just making a mistake. They're making an error in their global valuations. Their global valuations are departing from the kind of sum of moment by moment, and you should go with the sum of moment by moment, not the global valuation. I think the Aristotelian response, for reasons I'll come back to, why I think it's 
this is right, is that some departures from additive sums are rational. So here's my first example, and I'll give you one that you can all sort out. This is Orson Welles versus Wells Orson. <laughs> right, okay. Orson Welles, right, is a life that is a life of decline. It starts with, with success. He's the director of one of the most important films in cinema history, Citizen Kane. As his life progresses, it just gets worse and worse, and he ends up doing voiceovers for fish finger adverts. That's the real Orson Welles, right? Yeah. Wells Orson starts his life doing fish finger adverts, and it's an, as, as his talents develop, it's not a waste of talents, it's a story of, it's not a story of failed promise now, it's a story of talents developing over lifetime, and he ends his life directing one of the most important films in cinema history. <clears throat> I want to think on quite rational grounds that life, the life of Wells Orson goes better than the life of Orson Welles, right? Even if all the good moments, right, are equally pleasurable and all the bad moments are equally painful. So the total, total hedonic sum is, is identical. So I, I want to, you know, I think there's a plausible claim for saying a life that gets better is better than a life that just is a life of decline, right? So that's, that's, that, that sounds a plausible example to me. I mean, people can question it. The one that I want to give to you now, and I've done this, I'm waiting for the time that this is a disaster, right? Yeah, I kind of give this to audiences, various places, and it's never let me down yet. So this is always the first time, right? Yeah. Right. And there's always a minority when I do this as well. I want to give you a choice of two holidays. It's holiday A and holiday B. This is honeymoon. These are kind of based on rough, rough stories of what actually happens in people's honeymoons, right? Yeah. So this is holiday A, right? A newly married couple go on holiday to a two-week honeymoon. The holiday begins disastrously, right? They discover, yeah, this is so true. They discover much they didn't like about each other and they had noticed for the first, you know, before. And so the first four days is spent in an almighty row. They argue continuously over the next eight days, but actually by the end of the eighth day, I'm sorry, about the twelfth day we're on now, isn't it? <laughs> it's only two weeks of holiday. Right, but they've begun to get, they resolve, they resolve their differences and come to a deeper appreciation of each other. And the last two days, they're much happier. They both feel they've realised a relationship that's better, right, than they had, when they, which they had before the uh, argument. And the end, very happy. Right, so they sit on the table, you know, on the, on the, on the, you know, they're sitting on the plane together, they're going back, the plane blows up. This is just to end the story, right? We've got to, right, right. I don't want to think about after effects, so they both have sad ends in, the, in one sense, these stories. But anyway, there they are. But you're there with the person that you love, you're really happy, and it's been at the end, you've, you've, it's ended with happiness despite the argument. Here's Holiday B, right? And I know these ones as well. Holiday B, the couple go on honeymoon. First, two, first 12 days is just great. On the 13th day, you realise that the person you love just wasn't that person, right? Yeah. You realise, you, you not suddenly notice all these terrible character traits you never noticed before. At the same time, they've realised the same about you. On the last day, you just have the worst possible row, right? Yeah. And you get onto the plane, you go as far as possible you know, from each other on the plane. So one's at the front, one's way in the back corner, right? Spitting both just. You, you end up, you both die in the explosion, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm offering you now as an angel, you can get this, which holiday do you go for? Do you go for holiday A or holiday B, right? <laughs> okay, right, yeah. And I'm sorry about the dust of tender. So, so this is, I'll just do this and it's, okay. Who goes for holiday A? Right, yeah, right, right. Who, who goes for holiday B? Right, okay, so there's always a minority. But that's the, gen, that's, the gen, that's, the general, that's the general kind of distribution I always get with that. And the kind of argument I would, you, you're going for holiday A, even if there's more, there's more unpleasurable moments in holiday A than holiday B. So it's a lot less 
happiness in Holiday A than Holiday B. What matters to you is the narrative shape of the episode, right, yeah. What happens is that it's, a, it's an episode that starts badly and, go, and gets better, right, yeah, in a certain way, and ends well, rather than one that starts well and ends badly. Right, why does that matter, right? Okay, here's my, here's, right, so I'll come back to why I think that matters in a moment. Here's my next example, right, this is, this is a mathematician. I, before I did a lot of ethics, I used to do a lot of stuff on history of maths, and I, I was particular, my PhD was done on, a lot of it was on, on this mathematician called William Rowan Hamilton. Right, Hamilton's, I'll say a little bit of Hamilton's life now. I'm doing for time, right, I'll kind of speed up in a moment. His early work was of real importance, so if you look into a modern physics textbook, you'll see Hamiltonians. They're named after William Rowan Hamilton, right, yeah. His later work, which is what I interest, was interested in me, was on quaternions. And Hamilton thought quaternions were an amazingly important mathematical discovery. He said that it's going to be as important for the middle of the 19th century as the discovery of fluxions, that's calculus, was for the close of the 17th century. This was his great achievement, right, was quaternions. Yeah. Right. There's a wonderful book on history of maths by Bell, and, it, and the, the, the chapter for Hamilton is called The Irish Tragedy. Right. And this is his account of the, the tragedy of Hamilton. Hamilton's deepest tragedy was his obstinate belief that quaternions held the key to the mathematics of the physical universe. History has shown that Hamilton tragically deceived himself. Right, it was just an error. It had a role in the development of vector analysis, but it just didn't have the importance that he thought he was. So Bell in 1953, right. In, 19, in 2007 Physical Review, there's a paper by Lee Her called Quaternions and the Paradoxes of Quantum Dynamics. And what Lee Her does in that paper is he shows that if you replace quaternions, the replacement of quaternions by vectors, which is what happened towards the end of the 19th century, disguised important assumptions in quantum theory. And he demonstrates that if you take quantum quaternion theory along the lines that Hamilton originally projected, it solves a series of paradoxes of quantum mechanics. So it's a great vindication, right? Yeah. The only sad thing about that is I just made that paper up, right? That paper doesn't exist, <laughs> right, right, yeah. Okay, so that's, that's a complete piece of fiction, right? Okay, but what I want to say, right, and this is important, that had, Lee, had that paper existed, it would have vindicated, it would have, been, it would have done for Hamilton what mattered most to him in his life, right? It would have vindicated the, the importance of his theory. So it would have made Hamilton's life go well in a way that mattered to Hamilton more than anything else. Right. It's just sad that Lee Hur doesn't exist and the paper doesn't exist, right? So what I want to say is, you know, and here you've got a narrative that goes beyond someone's life, and I'll say, say a bit more about that in a moment, in a moment. Right. <coughs> what I want to say is narrative shape matters, right? It matters to why we think holiday A is better than holiday B, despite the great amount of pain. It matters why we think Lee Hur makes a difference to how well Hamilton's life would have gone, right? Why does it matter? The reason why it matters is because well-being isn't just a matter of being in the right subjective states, right, yeah. It's about a whole series of other important aspects of our lives of, that we value. So I'll, what I'm going to start here was with Kahneman again, because I think there's a, there's a nice paper by Kahneman and Stockton in, in which they say this, and Kahneman endorses this, actually, even though he's one of the main people that's developed hedonic psychology. He said, human well-being may be thought to depend not only on the sum of moment-by-moment -moment effective experiences, but also other aspects of life, such as autonomy, freedom, achievement, the development of deep personal relations, which cannot be decomposed into momentary effective experiences. So if we take 
deeper personal achievements. One of the reasons, sorry, deep personal interpersonal relationships. One of the reasons why we think holiday A is better than holiday B is because it's the story of the development of a personal relationship in a certain kind of way. And the story about how valuable that, relate, that development of that relationship is isn't just about how much pleasure and pain you happen to get from it. <laughs> right, for some people. <laughs> for most people, right? <laughs> right? There's always a few hedonists around in every audience. Right, okay. I can, I've, always, I've got your... Uh, yeah, right, I've got you spotted. Right, okay. <laughs> for later on in discussion. So, it, it kind of, it, so if, if what you're concerned about is interpersonal relationships, then actually moments of pain can have a quite different value. So painful moments of difference are, re you know, are redeemed by later reconciliation. They're, they're, they're actually where you started developing that deep relationship. It's where you started to understand somebody else. It, it was painful, but it was important and it was valuable. And likewise, pleasurable moments, you know, in holiday B, just turn out to be moments of illusion, right? They just weren't grounded in that nature of that relationship. The relationship was kind of, in a sense, a quite a trivial relationship when you realised that you weren't really having the kind of relationship you thought you had. So if you re what really matters to you is the relationship and the nature of the relationship, then you're not going to simply see it as a sum of momentary moment by effective you know, experiences. You're going to see it as something where the narrative shape of the relationship matters. Likewise for achievement. Take another one of those on that list. Uh, achievements. Hamilton... The reason why Lee Her matters to Hamilton is because what Hamilton wants to do is achieve one of the most important discoveries in mathematics since, uh, since calculus. Right. Lee Her would have made a difference to that if, if he'd existed. Right. It's, as I say, it's just sad that he doesn't. Right. Which takes me to more objective Aristotelian theories of well-being. So I'm, I'm using that for a, a kind of general, something, you know, general account here, which says that how well a life goes is a matter of what we actually do or, or what we can actually be. Right, right. That's what matters to us, rather than just moment to moment by experiences. Pleasures, in a sense, supervene upon significant uh, beings and doings, to use you know, the sense version of it. So, and the point about that is if, if it's the actual, what you can, you know, actual achievements, exist, you know, autonomy, having deep personal relationship, if it's these sorts of things that matter, for a number of central projects and relationships, we can't actually ascertain the value of particular moments independent of a larger narrative in which they occur. You have to actually see it as part of that larger narrative. And... Aristotle worries a bit about that in Nicomachean Ethics in Book 1, Chapter 10. So there's, there's a, he talks about this, this passage with, from Solon, where Solon says, call no man happy until he's dead, where you've got the sum of the story. The worry that Aristotle has is maybe that's a bit too soon to say. Right, yeah. And that's because the person's death isn't... And this is my version of it now, it's not Aristotle. The person's death isn't at the end of the narratives of which they're a part. So if you take the Hamilton story... Leha occurs after that, but that makes a difference to how well you think that life went, right? And there's a more general point here is that we engage in a series of projects and belong to a series of community such that how well our lives can be said to go depends on what happens to those projects and relationships that happen beyond our own lifetime. So it's true of Hamilton and the future of physics. I mean, that's the example from science. Few, I think, of lots of... Uh, political activities where the Bolshevik, you know, did, did Bolsheviks' life go well? You part, well, you partly you have to look at what happened to the political project they were involved in. 
It's true of art and cultural activities. It's true of everyday working lives. And it's true of familial relationships. It's where, you know, you, you know it matters to me how my, what happens to my children after my death. <laughs> right. and, if, and, if, and if their lives turn out badly because of things that I've done, then I've failed them in various ways. And my life has been a failure. It's not just that I've failed them. My life has been a failure in important aspects that it matter for me. Right. And so on. So it seems to me there's a whole series of projects where it matters to us now what happens after we die. Right? It's not just a matter of moral, a moral claim. It matters to how well we think our actual lives are going. And I think that's, and I've introduced the Hamilton, Hamilton example just to give a dramatic example of that. But I think you can do it on much more mundane levels than on everyday level. Right, yeah. So if, I mean, with my students, if, if, you know, if all my students I've ever taught take the educational thing, they all turn out to be Nazis just after I died, and they were, you know, my life has just failed terribly. <laughs> right. So it, you know, it, it matters how you know what you've done, you know, in the, in the educational part of your life, how you made people that are critical and so forth. And so a whole series of projects that's what's what matters. Right. That, there's actually an Aristotelian tradition which actually picks up on that thought. So if you go back to, civic, you know, to the civic republican tradition, one of, the, one of the worries they had, this is arguments about capitalism before capitalism, going back to the, 17, you know, going back to the 17th century and into the 18th century. One of the worries they had is the effect of the mobilization of landed po po property by commerce, by, by making it into a commodity. Right. What would mean that for projects over time, and so the, you know, the kind of argument they had is the material foundation of a good society said, you know, this is Pocock summarizing their view, lay in real property recognized as stable enough to link successive generations and social relationships belonging to or founded in the order of nature. The idea is if you just mobilized all land, all land and you treated it as something that you could just buy and sell, you undermined the link across generations. And that was a worry about, the, if, if you like, the commodification of land. And you, can, and you can kind of see the kind of thought that was behind them. If you, if you take someone that belongs to a, you know, a, a family farm that's been farmed for generations, right, one of the things that really concerns them is passing it down to the next generation as they've been picked up. You know, it's been passed down to them in the past. They see themselves as belonging to a community that crosses time. And it's a worry about the disappearance of that sense of community. Right? That can be quite a conservative thought, so it's kind of a worry. And I, can, I just say, you know, one of the things that when I gave this to... This talk to the Sustainable Development Commission, they kind of got very mixed political responses, right? So I'm on the kind of so here's my socialist side, right? Yeah, that's to say where I am, <laughs> right? You get echoes of that on the, on the socialist side of the debate as well. I mean, this, this can be seen as quite, you know, kind of Burkean theme as well. I mean, it's very strong in kind of Edmund Burke, that idea of community cross generation. You get a similar theme among socialists. So Polanyi talks about Karl Polanyi in the Great Transformation talks about the way that ties to a particular locality and place a stable extended community within a local, in a locality and commitments to a craft are undermined by the general mobilization of labor. So people are just displaced all the time. Or Seaman Vale, where she talks about a corporation or a guild with a link between the dead, the living, and those yet unborn within the framework of a certain specified occupation. There is nothing today which can be said to exist, however remotely, for carrying out such a function. So there's a kind of worry here that there's a kind of loss of the kind of projects which extend across time. Right. And I think, yeah, I've, we can talk about this in uh, discussion afterwards, the way this goes, because it can go in lots of different directions, right, yeah. But, but I think a, an important issue, which I'll come back to at the end, is how we kind of develop a sense of those kinds of projects which do give us a longer time horizon. Okay, 
section three, and then I'll very quickly I'll try and go through this a bit more quickly. Sustainability and well-being, Epicurus or Aristotle, right? Going back to summarise where I've uh, got to, there's a virtue. I think there's virtues in the recent revival of Epicurean hedonic theories of well-being and showing how reduced consumption can be rendered consistent with improving the quality of our lives. Right? Consuming isn't just a consuming less isn't just a matter of moral sacrifice, but it can't explain very well why sustainability matters to us in the first place. The future, like the past, doesn't matter for us. It can only matter in purely in ethical terms, purely in terms of ethical commitments, not in terms of why it matters to us. Aristotelian accounts, on the other hand, do highlight the way that the future matters for us, right, for the kind of projects that we engage in. Okay, so can you reconcile the two? I'll start, you know, start with some just empirical observations and then go on to something more conceptual. Empirically, right, if you take modern Aristotelianism, I'll take Sen's capabilities approach, which I think is based in that Aristotelian tradition, well-being is understood as capabilities to achieve valuable functioning. So functionings are the various things a person may value doing or being. Capabilities are people's freedoms to achieve you know, alternative functioning combinations. And if you look at the kind of standard capabilities story, you have the same kind of picture that I started with, with the hedonic view. You know, GMP isn't necessarily, GDP isn't just necessarily correlated with improvements in capabilities to functions. And you get a list of goods that are central to well-being, like the, the quality of family relations, quality of wider social relationships, security of intrinsic worth of work, health, personal political freedoms, political participation. The same list appears. But this list appears now in the capabilities approach as constituents of well-being, not as determinants of well-being. This is what well-being consists in, is having those kinds of, you know, certain kinds of relationships. They're kind of not what causally determines it, but it's what well-being consists in. You also get an ancient convergence. So if you get that Epicurean story that says that the amount of goods required for a good life is not unlimited, you get the same that thing echoed in Aristotle. The amount of household property which suffices for good life is not unlimited, nor of the nature described by soul in the verse. There's no bounds for wealth stand fixed for man. There is a bound fixed. So you get an ancient convergence. How do we reconcile it? Right, what I want to suggest in the last five minutes or so is that recent hedonic research, I want to question how much it's about subjective welfare at all. And really, what I want to do here is distinguish two different kinds of work that's going on in hedonic research. One is about global evaluations of life satisfaction. Another is about sampling methods. <laughs> right, yeah. So sampling methods is where you're doing those pain experiments. You just do the experience one. If you look at that, my initial graph, where you have life satisfaction staying similar, you know, stand, you know, going static like that, and GDP going up, that's based on life satisfaction surveys. And this is the kind of survey that you get here, right? So you get people saying things, taking things, all things together, how would you say you are? Very happy, quite happy, not very happy, not at all happy. Or all things considered, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole these days? Please use this card to help you answer. From one dissatisfied to ten dissatisfied. I say if you give someone, if you give someone that kind of answer, it's not surprising that it stays around about seven <laughs> all the way through, right? It's not, it becomes less... right. But, but, but the more general thing I want to ask about here is how far do those questions actually capture levels of happiness in the sense of subjective well-being, right? And I think, you know, using the logical term, is that there's a scope fallacy here. There's a difference between assessing subjective welfare, where subjective welfare is how your psychological states, 
and subjective assessments of welfare, where welfare can be understood in a much more objective Aristotelian sense. And I think what you're getting in life satisfaction surveys is subjective assessments of welfare, not assessments of subjective welfare. So what you're getting, so if you say, how happy are you with your job? The natural response is to say something like, the pay is lousy, but the poly colleagues are good, and the work's interesting. So you're talking about the actual quality of the work and the work relationships. Or if you say, how satisfied are you with your life? You might say something like, my job's terrible, but I have great family and friends. So again, you're talking much more about the objective constituency of your life in the Aristotelian sense, rather than, you're not, you're not thinking, how much happiness have I had recently in a, in a kind of graph-like way. So what a person is not doing is, I think, engaged in summing particular episodes of happy feelings. What they're engaged in is the appraisal about what they've been able to do or become in dimensions of life that are matter to them. Right. So if you ask people how happy or satisfied with their lives are as a whole, their people will reflect, you know, give you a judgment of how well they've been actually able to do and be in aspects of their lives. So I think you're actually picking up an assessment of how well people think that their lives are going objectively. I'll finish this with a few problems very, very, very quickly. Right. First of all, if once you've got that, there's a relationship. What's the relationship between subjective assessments of well-being and objective assessments of well-being? And it comes for health. This matters as well, I think. Second, about what the conditions for intergenerational citizenship for, and thirdly, about the institutional conditions for sustainability. Right. Firstly, on hedonic treadmills, I just want to say that. And Sam makes a lot of this, right? Yeah. Subjective assessments of well-being aren't always, don't always correspond with welfare levels. And you have a problem that Sen talks about with adaptive preferences. So if you're having a bad life, one way of dealing with having a bad life is to lower your aspirations to fit with your poverty. So if you're, if you're concerned with measuring inequality and justice, using subjective assessments of well-being isn't a very good measure, right? And there's more generally here, I think I want to make a distinction between hedonic treadmills and aspiration treadmills. It might be that you people aren't feeling any more satisfied with their lives, but their lives are going better. It's just that they want more out of their life, right? So it might be that some kinds of treadmills are fine, right? All it means is that, you know, that, that what you want, right, your aspirations have improved, and that doesn't seem to be a bad thing, right? So people want more out of their lives. So you get, you know, it's, I mean, you know, this is kind of... John Stuart Mill, you know, it's better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied, partly because you have much better aspirations for your life if you're Socrates. <clears throat> Just to illustrate that, I mean, I just, this is... I'll stop in a moment. This, I'll just put this up just to illustrate why, and this, is, this matters for all this recent Cameron stuff on, you know, this life satisfaction survey. This is people's job satisfactions, right? Right. What you'll notice is people in low-paid jobs, and this, I've seen two versions of this over for two different periods, appear to actually experience more life you know, better job satisfaction than people in higher, jo higher paid jobs. Now the question is, does that mean that low-paid jobs are great after all? <laughs> right, yeah. I think the answer is it's not, and there's, there's two reasons why this, is, this curve is like that. First of all, there's more women in low-paid jobs, and women, women tend to you know, state higher life satisfaction generally than men. Right, men are miserable bits. <laughs> yeah, sorry, people. Right. The, the other, I've forgotten with films, right? <laughs> They're miserable people. You can kind of <laughs> right, okay, the second thing is that people's aspirations might change as they go through. So people, in, people here, 
just wanted to be here and just feel, you know, they feel less happy with their lives as a consequence, right? Yeah. So you wouldn't use that curve as a way of talking about job quality. Secondly, I just want to say a little bit about what strikes me as an environmentalist dilemma from all of this about climate change. Environmentalists are properly concerned to talk about threats to the biophysical conditions for human life, right, and human well-being, right. But if you place in the foreground the fragility of the environment and the impermanence of the world, actually that might actually make it more difficult for people to think long-term, right. So I've stopped flying, I'll just say, I've, you know, I've stopped flying a few years ago, and I'll, I can talk about why that in discussion. I had a friend who said, why do you want to stop flying for? You know, the world, you know, it's going to be, you know, climate change is happening, it's going to be a disaster, so you might as well enjoy life as much as possible in the meantime, <laughs> right? And that's a rational response if you think a disaster's coming along, <laughs> right, yeah. So one worry I have about part of an environmentalist message is actually, it might actually shorten people's life, their, their temporal time horizons, rather than extend it. But at the same time, you've got, to, you've got to tell it as it is. So there's a kind of real dilemma, I think, for environmentalists about that. And thirdly, I just, I mean, I'll, I won't go through this in detail. I, th I think there's an important difference between the Aristotelian answer and the, and the Epicurean answer to why we, have, we, make, why we make the mistake about wanting more goods than we need. The Epicurean tends to see it as a cognitive error, right? We make a mistake. Aristotle sees it much more about certain kinds of institutions and institutional conditions. And I'll talk about that in discussion afterwards, but I'm looking at the time, so I think I'll stop now and say thanks very much for listening to me.